You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, episode number 158. Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceActingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, voice actor Crispin Freeman. Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. Welcome to part two of my interview with the voice of Porky Pig himself, Bob Bergen. While Bob is most famous for playing Porky, He's also played many other Looney Tunes characters, including Tweety, Marvin the Martian, Speedy Gonzales, and Sylvester Jr. He's also done work on Disney animated movies, the Star Wars games, and anime as well. His resume is long and varied, and he's been nominated for an Emmy Award three times. Bob has been teaching voice acting classes since 1987 and is a wealth of information and experience. I'm very grateful he spent so much time talking with us. In the first part of our interview, Bob shared the story of how he broke into voice acting. Ever since he was a kid, Bob wanted to play the voice of Porky Pig, and he was relentless in the pursuit of his goal. Before the advent of the Internet and easy access to information online, Bob was resourceful enough to use whatever means at his disposal to research famous voice actors and to learn about recording studios. His path into the voice acting world is a clear demonstration that almost anything is possible if you truly set your mind to it. In this episode, Bob and I talk about what inspired him to become a performer in the first place. It turns out, he can't imagine himself doing anything else. This is a common refrain I hear from actors. It was also the advice that I was given by many of my acting teachers, which was, don't pursue acting unless it's the only career path that will make you happy. Acting is a challenging profession. It requires not only great effort and persistence, but also an incredible amount of introspection and honesty with oneself. Those who succeed tend to have a deep level of commitment and unwavering determination. Bob's dedication comes from the fact that he loves the art of voice acting so much. Even in the beginning, he was so passionate about performing that he couldn't help himself. He just kept pressing forward in his pursuit of a professional career in voiceover. Also in this episode, we discuss Bob's mindset and how he was able to be so courageous at such a young age. Fortune favors the bold, as the old saying goes, and Bob has an amazing ability to take strong, decisive action in achieving his goals, even when he doesn't have all the answers ahead of time. It's an admirable quality that I hope will inspire all my listeners. So without further ado, here's Bob. And now, the feature segment. So at this point in the conversation, I like to talk, uh, we've talked a little bit about this already, but I really like to get into the mindset. What inspired you to become a performer? Uh, because I can't imagine doing anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, I, being in front of the microphone is my happy place. Um, acting feeds my soul the way food feeds my body. Mm-hmm. So um, performing is breathing. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people, if that this isn't for you, 
If, if performing isn't like breathing for you, find mm. out what that is. It, 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 what is breathing? Yeah, it might what be teaching. Your... It might be medicine. Yeah. It might be mechanics. I don't know. Mm. But you've got to do something that you look forward to doing that you honestly don't care if you get paid or not. Now, don't get me wrong. I pay my bills by doing this. And, and that's a fortunate circumstance. The other thing I tell my students is don't strive to be a working actor. Strive to be a great actor. Because mm. your odds of working are better if you're great. But too many people, and it's the internet that's done this, they're getting into this to make a buck. Because everyone is selling, make money at voiceover. Yeah. I mean, I never, I told you know, earlier when I said, you know, Casey Kasem, do you have a demo? Are you, are you in the union? Nobody talked about the business of the business back then. Mm-hmm. They talked about being a great voice actor. There's a, you know, the uh, master classes now? Sure, yeah. So have you seen the one uh, with Steve Martin about comedy? Yes. Where he says in the little commercial that mm-hmm. plays wherever you want to watch it, he says, uh, he has students coming to him saying, how do I get an agent? How do this, da, da, da. And he goes, da, 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 be so good that That's they it. can't ignore you. That's it. Also, Steve Martin, uh, Roseanne, George Carlin, uh, Freddie Prince, uh, Pryor, these are people who spent years being bad. Yes. Oh, I mean, 2 a.m., one, two drunk people in a club heckling them. They, they years being bad. Where people today, they want a couple of billion followers, and they say, now I'm a success. And they might actually be able to make a lot of money doing it that way. But the people that were legends in comedy, mm-hmm. the people that were legends as actors. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Mel Blanc, when he wasn't doing cartoons, he didn't, he didn't get rich on cartoons. Mm-hmm. He did, I mean, I think he got 25 bucks a cartoon. There weren't residuals back then. Yikes. That's why he asked for screen credit in the 40s. He asked for oh. a raise. Mm. And Jack Warner was like, no, we're not going to pay more. And he goes, well, can I have sole screen credit? Well, what does that cost me? Sure. Made him famous. But on any given night, he'd be at Sunset and Vine. And he'd run into the studio and do a line. And then go down the street to another studio and do a line for another radio show. And then another radio show. And then another radio show. And he worked his ass off. These are yeah. people who loved what they did, and did what they loved. And Mel Blanc didn't become wealthier at this until television and commercials yeah, and residuals. And I think it's really what you said about them sort of sucking in the beginning. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about how the first time you walked into your acting class and you were reading it very stilted like this. The voiceover class, yeah. I was the same way. The first time I was in acting classes, I was terrible. I was totally overdoing things and not knowing what's going on. Mm-hmm. But I got better. Sure. And because I, I looked at it and went, I suck. That makes me angry. <laughs> you know, like, well, I want to get better at this. But because you're also tr- critiquing yourself, you didn't have the tools to make it better yet. I yeah. think, but I do think we're born actors. I think we're born singers. I think we're born dancers. I think we're born sculptors. But what... You're born with that skill, but what class does is it teaches you the specific techniques so you can repeat your skills at will. See, I've heard you say that, but I was so bad when I was younger. So was I. That I'm not sure I would be. And I know there are are people that I grew up with who are just natural on stage. Well, if if you see a 10-year-old's finger painting, if you're an art critic or you know great art and you just see those splotches from that 10-year-old's little fingers... Mm-hmm. and you know great art, you're going to see that kid has potential. He's just raw. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think you know talent. You know, you know, you know talent. But I myself, um, I didn't have acting skills. I didn't have acting technique to draw on. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to make the, the, the imaginary truthful. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how to do it. And I got to be honest, um, in, in John's Meissner class, it was, I was months in because it's all repetition. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is, this is dumb. This is boring. Mm-hmm. And he said to me at the end of the nine months, first year, tell me if you still feel this way, we'll talk. And at the close to the end of the nine months, I went, oh my God, ding, 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 ding. I get it. It was a connection. Yeah. I connected to, to the technique. This is the, the Meisner acting mm-hmm. class for people who yeah. are not familiar. It's a, it's a type of acting. Yeah. I also, by the way, I, t- I studied with Stella Adler. Okay. You know, I went to study with everybody. I didn't connect with her. Yeah. Because at that time she was old and she was more of a critic than a teacher. Mm. But I, that's why I, I always tell people, don't, don't just take one class. Take Study, I studied voiceover with everyone. Mm-hmm. I literally, if they, t- if, they, if they taught a class, I took it. Dawes was the one I stayed with off and on for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Now, the classes back then were like 10 bucks mm-hmm. a week. They're a little bit more now. A little. Yeah. Um, but I, I go to Dawes's class and there would be um, Lucille Bliss, who was Smurfette. Wow. Or, um, or Janet Waldo or June Foray. Mm-hmm. All these veteran actors working out in Dawes's class. In Dawes's class, I was in an all-day Saturday workout group when I was a teenager. I don't know why they invited me, but it was um, there was Jack Angel, Ernie Anderson, Steve Schatzberg, um, Tony Pope, um, Danny Dark, and I was the kid. Wow! And now these were deep announcers. Okay. And they were just practicing their craft. And I, I learned the most during lunch. That's really? when I got the war stories, and that's where I got the career and how to handle yourself advice. I don't remember who it was. It might have been Schatzberg. It might have been Danny Dark or Ernie Anderson. I don't remember the one who said it. But one of them said to me, always portray a working actor and never break character. Let the world know, think, whether you are or you aren't. You're a busy working actor. And there's a fine line between confidence and cocky. Never be cocky. But everyone wants to work with confidence. It's like a magnet. You're in that audition and you're owning that space without being a jerk. Mm-hmm. But you're having fun. You're available to their adjustments. You don't just, you know, you're not, you're not um, so, so into your, yourself that you're not bendable. Mm-hmm. But that confidence is like, wow, they're making our stuff sound great. But out and about, they also said, rub elbows with the people who have the career you want or better. Don't hang out with people on the same boat or as you or lesser boats. Mm. Because they're going to all of a sudden start associating you with the, the, the creme de la creme, whether you're working that much or not. And eventually, you have the reputation of being one of them. It is amazing to me, Bob, this chutzpah, we've mentioned multiple times, the fact that things tend to, lots of things tend to line up for you really well. And there's a phrase that I really like from the original Star Wars movie where Han Solo says, I call it luck. And Obi-Wan Kenobi says, in my experience, there's no such thing as luck. And there's something about your audaciousness. Where do you think that comes from? I will tell you, I had very supportive parents. That's helpful. I did too, but I was a shy little boy. I never would have done any of the things you did. I was a precocious little yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry I said that on your podcast, That's but there right. we go. Um, Beeps are always you, available. You just got a, an E or something on your little <laughs> podcast ring. Um, it's explicit. Um, I I never gave a damn. I didn't care about looking bad. I didn't care. If, actually, you know what? I don't go to my booth to audition thinking I'm going to get it. 
In fact, you're probably the same way. You must be. When you get that call from your agent that you booked it, my first question is, did I read for that? Because <laughs> I have to go back into my files and listen. Yeah. And, you know, every once in a while, it will be for a repeat uh, buyer who just, they no, they just hired you. They just, they just want you for this. But most of the time we have to audition and I've got to go back and re-familiar. Oh, yeah, I did read that. Okay. All right. I remember reading for that. Yeah. Or, oh, my God, they bought that one? I worked, I did so much better on the other character. They bought that one. The, the lesson there is it's out of your hands. Yeah. Just commit to those choices. Have fun and forget about it. But I've, I've always been extremely, um, yeah, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to do this no matter what. So you're sort of lacking a uh, uh, self-consciousness or there's no shame there? No. No. I mean, no, not at all. Um there have been times where the jobs, this one's not as fun as previous ones, but, you know, not everything can be, oh my God, I'm working for Pixar, I'm working for um, LucasArts, you know, not everything can be like, oh, look, look what I get, so, you know, and sometimes it's just paying the bills. It's just mm-hmm. a commercial. Yeah. But, but I mean, not, not even the, the, I'm not even talking about like a job for an impressive production company or something that might make someone nervous i'm saying that there seemed like that you, you had no qualms you you weren't terribly worried about what other people might think of you and never have okay I, I i i i do in my personal life you know but i don't in my in my professional life in my personal life you know i just want i want everyone to like me i want you know i'm, I'm human but yeah I, you know at the mic and as a character i'm not doing it for their satisfaction or on the phone with mel blank yeah well, I mean, when you said, he said, uh, have you, do you have any original characters? Isn't that what he asked you? Mm-hmm. And, and you immediately, and you just told me, which was great, that inside your brain you're saying, don't, get, don't tell me the odds. Right. right? I, I, didn't, I didn't care. Yeah. I think on the conversation he says, you know, you know how old are you? 14. Well, it, it, it's awful hard business. Yeah. I didn't care. Yeah. You know, it, you know what? It, you know, it's also hard to be a lawyer. It's really hard to be a, a brain surgeon. Yes. Life. If you're going to be good at something and successful, chances are it's going to be hard and you're mm-hmm. going to have competition. Yeah. But I didn't care. I never cared about my competition. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember I, I did my, my, the first major motion picture I did was called Gremlins. Yes. And I think that was one of Jim Cummings' first jobs. Oh, wow. And I can rem- And he was brilliant. And I remember being at VoiceCasters a few weeks later, and there's Jim sitting on the couch, and he goes, oh, my God, guys, we can all go home. Bergen's here. And all I kept thinking was, oh, my God, we can all go home. Cummings is here. You know? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think all of us inside, if we're really honest, you know, I've done Rob Paulson's podcast. We recently did a, a podcast together with Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, wow. And we were talking a lot before we went on the air and after we went off the air. And this might have been on. I don't remember because we talked so much. Mm-hmm. But we were all, all three of us were talking about how, you know, if any actor um, says that they're not insecure or they don't doubt, then they're lying. Mm-hmm. But there's doubt and there's, but I don't care. And mm-hmm. they're not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. everybody's going to go in there and go, I don't know if I'm going to get this. Mm-hmm. I, there, I have a doubt in my mind that I will be right for this. They may want a celebrity. Mm-hmm. They may want someone older. Than, they may want somebody younger. Right. But what I don't doubt is I'm going to do a good job with this audition. That I don't doubt. And today's yeah. audition is an insurance policy for another audition. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you want to book it. But if you don't and it's good, they'll remember you. But I'm not in that booth auditioning to please them. I'm there to please myself. 
And if I do get the job, a fortunate circumstance, it is luck. Is that notion of pleasing yourself and not trying to please them, is that something you just had innately or is that something you learned? I think both. I think I had it innately and didn't realize I had it until I got, you know, knee deep into the business. Mm. Um, again, I never get nervous at an audition with the exception of Chuck Jones. But um, I will say the first few times I had to re-audition for Porky, it was like, a, I mean, the first time it was a punch to the gut because they thought I lost the ability because of laryngitis. And then it was Space Jam. And then it was, um, I think, the Looney Tunes show. No, it was back in action. And then, no, it was Looney Tunes show. For the Looney Tunes show, um, we did a pilot. And after we did the pilot, they held auditions for all the characters. Hmm. And I got a call from the director and from the head of the studio both saying, well, you just go through the motions. Mm-hmm. New young producers, they just want to be able to pick yeah. and, to, and to go through them. I said, sure, happy to go through the motions because I don't own the character. Mm-hmm. And again, I, why, why get nervous? I will tell you this. I got to the point re-auditioning for this character where I thought, and this is my mindset today, when, it's going to happen again, I can guarantee it. Um, if somebody's better, they deserve it. Mm-hmm. I mean, this March will be 30 years. Damn it, that was 30 fun years. I can't deny that those were 30 great years. Will it be disappointing? Of course. If I lose it for whatever reason, will it come back? Probably uh, at something. But the bottom line is gratitude gets you through. Uh You've got to have gratitude just because it's healthy. Uh But I really do in my heart believe if somebody's better, Uh then by golly, I will shake their hand and say congratulations. And look at those 30 years. Three Emmy nominations, tons of shows, tons of films. That's nothing to, to be depressed about. So you never get nervous, other than with Chuck Jones, you never get nervous when you go to voice act? Mm, trying to think. How do you square that with the notion of feeling insecure, that all actors are insecure? Oh, uh, insecure, you're, it's the doubt. So, okay, well, all right, I'm doing a couple of new shows right now. Okay. Um, and I'm working for a couple of people I've never worked with before. Well, there's an adrenaline rush. It's Mm. like, you know, I don't know what their personality is. They don't know what my personality is. Um, I don't know. Some of these cast members might be 12. Who knows? I don't know. It's the the newer generation. Mm -hmm. I'm not nervous. It's just that that the butterflies of the new. Mm. Um, Hoping that everyone's going to be nice. And, you know, as well as I do, it's very rare to to work with an in the, in the voiceover industry. This is a really, really, I mean, from the directors to the producers to the writers, we're dealing in cartoons. It's not going to be sad. But I don't get, oh my God, I'm so nervous. What am I going to do? But I do get an adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I've, um, I've, I've, I've had conversations with uh, some celebrities. Like I had a conversation with once with um, uh, Carol Burnett. She did a thing mm. at the TV Academy. And I said, did you get nervous doing your show? And she goes, I was terrified until I went out into that audience. Because it was the anticipation leading up, what if, what if, oh my God, what if. And then as soon as you get out there and you're in your element, Mm -hmm. you know there's nothing to be terrified of because that's why you're put on this planet. Mm -hmm. For her, it was to be with that audience and do sketches. For me, it's to be in front of a microphone. Yeah. But have there been times, because it looks, <laughs> your journey looks uh, uh, 
sort of indomitable, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, like, like, like you're just carving this path like an icebreaker through everything. Were there ever times, though, where you made mistakes? You things happened that you regretted, like lessons that you learned from. Well, things sure, going because wrong? that. But that's why God created Take Two. I mean, very rarely do we do anything that's live. Yeah. So if you make a mistake, I mean, I've done Take Nine. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I'll tell you a time I got nervous. Hmm. Um, I have a one-man show that I did. Yes. Before I launched it as a one-man show. So it, it, was, it started out as it was going to be a sitcom about Universal Studios tour. About you being a tour guide at Universal. Well, yeah. But a, but a sitcom about about the tour. Okay. And the, the gentleman I was working with who was uh, transcribing the stories I was telling, he's like, well, what if we made this like a, could you perform these characters? Because they were all very colorful characters, former tour guide friends of mine. I said, mm-hmm. sure. And then he goes, well, what if we just made it you? And what if act one was the five-year-old kid who wants to be Porky Pig. Act two is he's paying his bills to being a tour guide. Act three is peace Porky Pig. Mm-hmm. I said, great. So we went to, um, to Oakwood Apartments on Barham. They have a little stage Hmm. And they would bring in people to do play readings and whatnot. And so he had me, I hadn't even memorized everything. I had everything on three by five cards. And he taped me just to get my feet wet doing this, performing this. Because his idea was, let's not write a script. Let's invite networks to a play, to a theater, and perform this to sell the the, the sitcom script rather than actually do a script. Because I was playing all the characters. Mm -hmm. He taped it. A buddy of his was a manager named Ken Cragen. And Ken Cragen, uh, he wanted to get Ken's, what do you think of this kid? And Ken goes, you know, he's really good. Um, my client, Kenny Rogers, needs an opening act to finish up his, his summer tour. Can, can you take 20 minutes of that and do this? And this was like a Tuesday. And I said, well, when do you need to know by? And he goes, you'd be performing in Oregon or Oakland, I forget, on, on Thursday. And I said, well, and my manager goes, we'll do it. <laughs> so... Yeah, it was somewhere in Northern California, the first one. It was a winery. Um, and I am, I went from 35 people at the Oakwood Apartments to two days later, this amphitheater at this winery. That I was nervous about. I wasn't nervous about being able to perform. I can't memorize. Oh, dear. I have no memorization skills because, as you and I know, we read everything. Yeah. Um, that's, what, that's what I was nervous about, that I'm going to flub a line. Yeah. Now... Uh, my manager said, your story's autobiographical. Nobody knows if you flub a line. <laughs> that gave me such comfort. Right. But then when I did my show as a one-person show where it had dozens of lighting and audio cues, well, I had to have the audio cues accurate so that the, the guy in the booth knew to... Push the button. But I was still a terrible... I still to this day can't memorize. Mm. And on stage, I had a stage where I had like a music stand here and a coffee table here. I would have notes after this line, walk stage left to the music stand. And on the music stand, it was, welcome to the music stand. On this line, go to the center uh, director's chair. And a little, to, for, for myself. Yeah. Now, what's really fascinating is right now, because I was there for five years, uh-huh. I could do the entire Universal Studios tour from beginning to end. Wow. Because it's like doing the same play four times a day for five years. Sure. Now, my knowledge of the damn place stops at Knight Rider and Murder, She Wrote. I have no idea what they're doing now. <laughs> but I, I remember that tour backwards and forwards because you, you, you just you had to memorize a manual four inches thick. 
So yeah. for some reason, that stayed with me. Huh. Do you, what did you learn from being the tour guide at Universal? Uh, nothing about voiceover. <laughs> um, what I learned about, well, first of all, I'm, I'm a film buff. Okay. On my days off, I would make sure, most, most people wanted weekends off. Hmm. I wanted weekdays off because on my days off, I would go on the back lot and watch movies being made. Oh, okay. That's what I learned. I gotcha. learned, oh, that's how you hit your mark. Oh, that's lighting. Oh, that's a grip. Oh, that's what the camera, that's a boom. Mm. I learned how movies were, were actually made. And I watched a lot of classic movies, classic from the 80s, but I guess it's classic now. Uh, and TV shows being made. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's what I learned by being a tour guide. But wow. nothing from, I, I didn't even think of being a guide as performing. Yeah. Okay. It, you know, I mean, I was, you're, you're playing the part of a tour guide, but, and you're telling stories. But it, was an, it was an anthropological study. I think, oh, there you go. Yeah, you were going in and seeing how, how the natives did their thing. Pretty much, you yeah. know. Um, the hardest part about the job was if something breaks down, you have to keep talking. So they had stall speeches. Oh. But no matter where I was, I would always bring it back to cartoons. Really? So, I, so if we were on the back lot on New York Street and the tram broke down and we're just surrounded by facades... I would say something like, well, here we are at New York Street. As you can see, these are facades. Facades, a French word meaning false front. Uh, if an actor is shooting a period piece, let's say it's a gangster movie, they might do a medium shot of the actor, but all of a sudden, a plane goes by that didn't exist during the 30s when, they were, when this film takes place. So the actors will have to go into a sound studio on the front lot and do ADR, which stands for Automated Dialogue Replacement. These are the same stages where Walter Lance recorded the Woody Woodpecker cartoons, which started here at Universal Studios. So no matter where I was, I could, right I could go back to, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So yeah, you give them a sort of education about um, about animation. Just well, you know, the thing is, you're supposed to talk about something that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. And when I tested for the for the thing, you're supposed to talk for five minutes about some part of the of the movie industry you love. Now I just talked about Looney Tunes, and they said you got the job. But on our lot, don't talk about Warner Brothers. <laughs> That's oh, really okay. I'll take right. that. No problem. Gotcha. So did you have to find like universal cartoons? Yeah, stuff but that was then? easy to do. Yeah. It was Andy Panda and Woody Woodpecker and Chili Willy, so that was fine. And that was no big deal. Yeah. So it's interesting what you were saying about because I'm sure as the tour guide, you had a persona that you put on. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I've heard you say that you feel more comfortable in your pig skin mm -hmm. than in your natural skin. Yes. That must be interesting, considering that I would imagine in your Meisner class, they didn't want you hiding behind a character, did yeah, they? Well, you're absolutely right, which is why that class was so important to my voiceover career. Because, I, you know, 90% of the time we're not doing cartoons. We're doing ads. We're mm -hmm. doing narration. We're doing promos. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to be yourself. So the Meisner technique taught me to be authentic mm -hmm. and to not hide behind a smurf mm -hmm. or a pig, um, which, by the way, it's easy to do. It's so much easier to play the over-the-top character mm -hmm. than to bring it down. The microphone can hear our thoughts. It can yeah. hear our hair growing. Yeah. You know, you don't have to scream into the microphone. There's an engineer on the other side of that glass. And if you're just talking about right here, you know, you're just having a conversation. You know, if you or someone you love has a drinking problem, call this number. All they got to do is up the levels and the walls can shake. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to push it any higher than that. But 
if you're over the top, if I'm being a tour guide, talking about Universal Studios, that's tour guide voice. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't hold their attention if I'm just being conversational, Bob, where it would be more appropriate for, say, a film or a Mm -hmm. TV show. Yeah. More conversational because, you know, you've got you've got to reach the person in that fourth car on the, on the tour. Yeah. No, I mean, the, you have to. I mean, it's something I talk about. I remember I got in an argument with a woman once. She was like, uh, acting is acting. And I said, yeah, but you have to modify depending on the style of the project. Shift gears. Yeah, because the way you act in Lord of the Rings is not the way you act in The Sopranos. Correct. And the way, right? you, and the way you act at a, at a black box theater is not how you're going to act on Broadway. No. And the way you act for a three-camera sitcom is not how you're going to act for a one-camera, no-audience sitcom. Yeah. It's still authentic. Your work has to sound extemporaneous, spontaneous. Even an actor who has rehearsed those lines and made choices, as far as the audience is concerned, that character has never said those words before. Right. And you have to give that delivery as prepared as you are, as if you'd never said those words before. So, so often I see students of mine hide behind the character. Mm -hmm. And what I'm often trying to elicit out of them is that authenticity. And often what I have to do is I have to take away all the masks. Mm -hmm. Like I have to take away all the crutches Mm -hmm. until they can be authentic in the moment. But it sounds like you're most comfortable with the mask, not when it's taken away. How do you how do you resolve that? How do you how do you how did you bring it really reminds me of what I was saying to Morgan, saying, Morgan, you're helping me become more and more authentic, mm-hmm. but how does it help me play Daffy Duck? How do you how do you marry because when you do Porky, there's authenticity. Mm-hmm. It's not just the stutter, mm-hmm. right? So how did how what was the way that you found to bring those two notions together? Well, it's again reacting. I've got a scene partner. So I'm not just reading the lines in a funny voice, stuttering, finding the funny ad lib to take that left turn there's a story we're telling right now there's a situation there's conflict just like any script or acting it just happens to be a looney tune right so you as an actor you still have to find those layers of character what i tell my students is all characters have a voice but not all voices have character Mm -hmm. so it's the and you've seen it too it's the actors that get to the mic in a class and they're just doing a voice or they'll get up there and they'll just do a southern accent I'll say, great, do me a favor, do it again, take out the accent. All they were doing was a Southern accent. Yes. But Southern people still have hearts and (laughs) senses of humor and cadence. (laughs) And they've got vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And these are the layers of the onion. This is the actor's onion, which is made up of sometimes billions of layers. Mm -hmm. And even though you might have one or two lines... You still have to have a committed character with those one or two lines. We've all seen actors in that very small part in a TV show or movie who they steal the scene because there's something going on in their eyes. There's something going on other than going, their line, their line, my line, done. Mm-hmm. They're, take, they're committing just as much to that as Dustin Hoffman is in the lead. Mm-hmm. So I don't say, well, it's just Porky Pig. I know this character, I'm just going to go through the motions. Mm -hmm. I am really delving into the character, the conflict, the purpose. What part of Bob is then coming up to play Porky? None of it. I'm I'm completely out of the equation. Really? Oh, yeah. So there's no no sense of uh, there is a subset of who Bob is that is coming up to meet 
the mask that is Porky. The and then- only thing I will say is, and this took a long time, you know, the 12-minute reference that yes. they would play us. Yeah. Eventually that stopped because eventually, after many, many years and many presidents of Warner Animation and people in charge, they finally went, well, he's been doing it for, for five years, 10 years, 15 years. I think we've got enough generations who go, they're used to his version of this character. Because mm. I will tell you, I don't sound like Mel Blanc. Mm-hmm. None of us sound like Mel Blanc. None of us will ever be Mel Blanc. Mm-hmm. Because Mel Blanc created these characters. He, I think, was more in these characters than I. Um, he was a genius. He was an original. I don't try to be Mel Blanc. People ask me all the time, you know, how do you compare yourself? I don't. I don't even think about him. I try to play Porky Pig. Mm-hmm. Now, Mel Blanc died in 1989 before there were cell phones, before there were home computers, mm-hmm. before there were Uber drivers. And we're, we, now we have Porky Pig uh, referencing today's society, today's pop culture. Mm-hmm. So I've got to be able to play that character living in today's society. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking about Mel Blanc. I'm not even thinking about myself. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about this character. Yeah. So I'm not in the equation when I'm playing that character at all. I'm not, and I know it's so funny because I will watch Tom Hanks in a movie, with the exception of Mr. Rogers, because he was kind of absent there. That was a very different kind of character. But uh-huh. um, Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks. Right. Um, Jimmy Stewart was Jimmy Stewart. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, it's, it's, it's Harvey, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful life, and, and it's a Western. But it's, it's the same guy, you see, but in, in different situations. I, I never saw the chameleon. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think of, that I'm in the equation when I'm doing cartoons. I really don't. You're just losing yourself in... Well, I, I, Go ahead. every once in a while. Uh-huh. Um, I always tell my students, find a signature. Mm. Find a something, a quirk, something that makes that character memorable. I mm-hmm. don't know what that is until I see it in the script. Mm-hmm. If I have a script and I got a bunch of auditions today that are due Monday and two of the characters fit this description, 35 to 45... Uh, Average, real dad, um, uh, loves life, uh, happily married, has kids, uh, just warm, blah. That's me. Mm-hmm. I will go in there and read those words the way I'm having this conversation with you. I will be myself. Mm. I am the signature. Mm. In those characters, in those situations, I'm not going to look for a funny voice. Now, if it says he's a worrier, I might find some things to worry about. Mm-hmm. But that's in the personality. That's mm-hmm. a character trait. But I'm going to be probably playing more my authentic self because it's a very real character. Mm. If they're going for something a little bit more over the top or if they're going for something regional, then I'm going to find other layers to it. Mm-hmm. And I slowly will take myself out of it. But there are a lot of characters, a lot of times where I'm just doing different versions of me. Yeah. Are you familiar with Commedia dell'arte at all? The Italian no. mask work? No. So there's a famous character. These are all uh, comedic archetypes that mm. were done in the 16th century in Italy. Um, Arlecchino, who becomes Harlequin, mm-hmm. and Pantalone, and Brighella. And you can see these archetypes show up in The Simpsons all the time. One of them is called Tartaglia. Okay. And he's a stutterer. Oh. And he's sort of known to be sort of a fuss budget. Okay. Usually he's some sort of accountant mm-hmm. or some other, you know... Officious. Officious, smart, but... Right. And that's and that Tartaglia. And I, I always wondered if, if you were aware of that nope. archetype. Mm-mm. Fascinating. Yeah. I wonder if uh, if the powers that be back at Warner Brothers in the day were aware of those archetypes. Well, I do know that Chris Freeling created um, Porky Pig. And his, okay. his daughter, Hope, uh, who's a friend of mine, said that Frizz-based... 
Porky after a kid he went to school with who stuttered, and they called him Porky because he was fat. There you go. Yeah. Wow. Hopefully, over the course of these first two episodes with Bob, you're beginning to understand how deeply an actor can explore the psyche of a character. This in-depth exploration is often expected in theater and film, where actors may spend weeks or even months immersing themselves in a character, and even transforming their bodies to suit that character. In the world of voice acting, we don't have the luxury of weeks of rehearsals. But that doesn't mean the characters we play are any less nuanced or complex. When Bob says every character has a voice, but not every voice has character, he is encouraging his students to really embody the psyches of their characters and not simply hide behind accents or vocal affectations. Understanding a character's psyche can be challenging, especially when all you have to work with are some words on a page. Any script is simply providing the bare bones of a character. It's up to the actor to flesh out all the organs, connective tissue, musculature, and skin, not to mention hairstyle, wardrobe, and personality quirks. As I mentioned, theater actors usually take weeks of rehearsal to build up a fully realized character. As voice actors, we have to do that rehearsing before we even book a role. Due to the limited time we usually get with a script, whether we're auditioning or at a paid recording session. This is why it's common to hear about voice actors practicing developing characters on their own. They're not waiting for someone to hire them in order for them to start studying a certain character type. Instead, they put in the work exploring many different character psyches before they even audition. Bob started studying Porky when he was five years old. He was sitting in front of his television doing his best to mimic the character he was trying to understand. As he got older, his understanding of the character deepened until he is now at a point where he can dial in whatever version of Porky the producers would like from every different decade of the character's existence. That's voice acting mastery. I encourage you to bring the same level of commitment to your study of characters. It's easy to get distracted by the surface affectations of the way a character speaks and think that all it takes to play that character is to imitate their sound. Ask any working voice actor how they approach creating a character, and they'll tell you that vocal affectation is the last thing they think about when it comes to building their performance. Instead, they'll focus on the character's backstory, their desires, their fears, and their relationships to the other characters around them. Actors will try to find people and experiences in their own lives that will help give them insight on the character they're creating. They'll do their best to see the world through the character's eyes. They'll even try to embody the character physically and change their posture in order to get closer to the character's mindset. The absolute last thing they will add in is any vocal affectations or pyrotechnics. The more you can understand, embody, and portray the emotional life of your character, the more character we will hear in your voice. Vocal pyrotechnics are fun, but they are merely the final spice in the complex recipe that creates a believable character performance. If you haven't built a solid psychological foundation for your character, no amount of spice can compensate for that deficiency. If you haven't already, take the time now to study characters and see if you can understand their motivations. This can be especially helpful with characters you know and love. Why do you care about these characters so much? What is it about them that you find captivating? 
Could you explain your favorite character's motivation to someone who isn't familiar with the character so they could appreciate them the same way you do? The more you can understand and empathize with a character's point of view, the more fully you'll be able to portray them believably. Next time, in the third and final part of our interview, Bob gives his advice to aspiring voice actors. He's been teaching voice acting classes for more than 30 years, so he's seen a lot of changes in the industry over time. He shares some great wisdom about demos and how to approach agents. He also encourages his students to value their own artistry and not sell themselves short. It's valuable insight from someone who's really got his finger on the pulse of the voice acting world. So, I'll see you in the next episode. And until then, I wish you all the best in your voice acting endeavors. Take care. You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>